We were three guys out of Copenhagen. Nobody invested in foreign stuff back then. Nobody. Every business talks about, oh, we have these customers and we have these customers and blah, blah, blah. But you never really have a customer. Like this thing about owning the customer relationship and so on, it's all bullshit. You're never in control of that customer relationship. As a founder CEO, especially, you know, like you can get up every morning and still be incredibly challenged and just hit with pure humility towards what you have in front of you and find personal kind of satisfaction in having to deal with these challenges every single day. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. Today on the show, we have Mikkel Svane. Very, very excited to have Mikkel. I first met Mikkel in 2011 at the introduction of Dana Stalder over at Matrix. I remember meeting you, Mikkel, down, I think, on Townsend Street in uh, an office back in the day. And then you were nice enough to join us at a GGV CEO dinner later that year uh, where we had Gary Vaynerchuk come. That's right. And uh, that, was a, that was a really fun event. And then we were fortunate enough to invest in the company in 2012 and it's been quite a ride for you guys, obviously all the way through, but certainly for us ever since. So welcome to Founder Real Talk. We're really glad to have you. No, no, thank you. Thanks for having me. So first question for you, Michael, we wanted to go back before our investment. Let's go back to like the founding of the company. You founded the business in, in 2007, so it's, it's over a decade ago already. And you, know, you didn't found it in a startup mecca, being in Copenhagen. And uh, the early days, you know, it was just you and your co-founders, Morton and Alex, and uh, you're in pretty makeshift conditions. So, you know, to see where you are today versus where you started is pretty remarkable. <laughs> if you if you go back to the mindset that you had in 2007, did you ever dream that this could be possible? And what were you thinking then uh, versus where you are today? It is remarkable to think about how different it was because, you know, it's been a crazy ride. So Sandesk is today a company we have... You know, more than 2,000 employees. We had a half a billion dollars in revenue run rate. Uh, we have operations all over the world. Like more than 100,000 brands are using our, our software. So it's been a crazy ride because we started, as you said, out of Copenhagen, Denmark, the least startup-friendly place in the world, <laughs> at least back then. And it was very different times. So, no, we had absolutely no idea. Like we built this from our gut and from being realistic about we were – this was our last shot at, at doing something if you really wanted to do something and, and just like, you know, drove it all by passion and God and instinct and, and just like dedication. And then it became this thing because we were fortunate with timing, <laughs> lucky. You, you, you say that, you say that, but you, you've also said that the first million of ARR took 18 months. <laughs> so these days you're doing a, a million of new ARR much more quickly than that. <laughs> yeah, that and is. so, so did, did you ever lose faith back in those early days? And, all the time, it, yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what got you through? It is one of these things that is crazy as a startup that like, Half of you is is like blindly, you know, optimistic and determined to succeed. Half of you is just like in constant fear and pain and despair about, 
like losing everything. <laughs> so, so you, that's the kind of the dynamic. That's the dichotomy or di- the, the what do you call it dialectic you have to embrace as a startup founder, and it's it's uh, terrible, you know. It, especially when you're not like a professional founder. Like, there's a lot of pro founders here in Silicon Valley. Uh, once once you get out of side of the bubble, it's it's a little bit different. Not a lot of professional founders in Copenhagen. No, 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 no. <laughs> You've mentioned in um, some other conversations that early on the team was bootstrapping and people were doing consulting gigs to kind of pay the bills on the side. Uh, at what point did you guys decide to to go full time, right, and to to raise capital and, and go for it? When the product went live, and that was like the last month of 2007, we gave each other like six months. You know, like let's go full time in on this for six months and figure out a way of financing those six months, even though it was. Terrible, and it was that, that was a super difficult time because we had no money, no nothing, financed everything out of our own pocket. But at the same time, it's like it's so rewarding putting a product out there and starting getting customers and users and getting feedback. So it's again like it was, you know, on one side it was just like, oh, this is amazing. On the other side, it was like, oh my god, what despair! Like I was literally running out of money all the time, you know. So Eva's in the studio with us today. She's five years old, and she doesn't know anything but Silicon Valley. But I had two like two other daughters at that point, you know, like young, young kids, one newborn. Uh, and like running out of money when you have like two little kids is just like terrible. But again, you know, I, I, I would never do it again. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about those who helped you do it in the early days, some of the VCs. Yeah. Obviously, Christoph from Point Nine was super helpful early on. Yep. I have a fond memory of hearing from Matt Kohler at Benchmark, <laughs> who told me that the first time he met you, I think you took him over to your house, and he watched Pippi Longstocking with your daughters, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, so you obviously took it, you know, it was a very personal decision for you to, to pick your early investors, uh, Christoph and Dev Dud, and, and then, you know, Matt and, and, and Peter over at Benchmark. Yep. Talk to us about that process. Like in particular, I think Christoph had a big impact on how you thought about the business, how you talked about the business, but obviously lots of ups and downs and lessons learned with VCs. We'd be curious yeah. to get your take on on that part of the journey for you. Well, I think very early on we had this uh, we had this belief that we could raise money locally in Denmark on Europe, and like we quickly understood we there was no way in hell we could do that. Like um, it was a di- completely different mindset, and there wasn't a professional VC industry in Europe at that point, not at all. Mm-hmm. Like we very quickly ran out of options. We we felt like we had been in touch with kind of everybody. And so we ran out of options. And, and at that point, we actually decided to raise money from what we call friends and family and fools. Um, <laughs> uh, the FF and F round. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is it's a, just a terrible idea, you know. In this case, it turned out really well for these people. <laughs> but like in all other cases, it just never works out. But while we were doing that, we suddenly got this call from Christoph out of the blue, and I met him in Berlin, and it was uh, it was just a super good conversation. Christoph was just a, a very engaged guy and and very humble and uh, with a fantastic attitude, and and but again with the maturity and insight and a knowledge that we didn't have uh, from his own days doing page flakes and a few other things. So at this point, he wasn't like a professional VC yet; he hadn't formed uh, point nine. So he was basically investing out of his own 
pocket and we were like ah do we you know now we just raise this money from the friends and family do we want to do this but like it turned out like we said like sure that's it makes sense and we got him aboard and that was you know it's just super duper helpful for us but because he came with an outside perspective and he'd been through some of these things before and he knew what it meant to raise money he knew what it meant to talk to vcs and he helped us kind of build some of the initial business plan and and like okay this thing that somehow happens to us and customers come in and convert into you know we monetize them like okay he actually helped us build a model this is actually a model it's a funnel model and oh we're like oh that's how it works <laughs> and it like for many years it's, it's funny to think about that today look back like 10 years ago the concept of a funnel model as a business model did not exist yeah did not exist and it took us many years to actually gain confidence that this was a viable model mm-hmm. that this thing about we, we constantly sat with the fear that all these people who came to our website today, maybe they just wouldn't show up tomorrow. You know, maybe we just emptied the market. That was it, you know? And then, like, next month, there will be no revenue, <laughs> you yeah. know, new, no new revenue at least. <laughs> uh, and it took us many years to actually gain confidences that the funnel model, conversion model, is actually like a real business model. So at that time, yep. as looking back with hindsight, Clearly, the funnel model, as you describe it, let's call it the self-service and high-velocity model, is clearly working for you guys and lots of other companies, but you really helped invent it. And it sounds like Christoph helped you kind of crystallize how to tell that story. When you came to the U.S. and raised your first you know, real venture yeah. rounds, yeah. you had a lot of no's before you got to some yeses. How do you think you got you know, CRV over the hump you know, and then benchmark over the hump? And th- those rounds were pretty quick one yeah. after the other. It was complicated. Like we needed to spend a lot of time. I traveled back and forth for like a year talking to everybody, just trying to talk to everybody. And like we were we were relatively far down the path with some VCs and then realized that no, that was a dead end and they wouldn't end it up not investing. This was just about the time where who was it? Was it Sequoia? Who yeah, rest, had, rest in peace. Yeah, rest exactly. In peace Good times, rest in peace. Yeah. And like that was just when we were like, okay, let's let's do it now. Your, your timing was impeccable. <laughs> right, right during the global financial crisis. Let's, go, <laughs> exactly. let's come from Copenhagen to the U.S. and try to raise venture capital money. So even though we kind of had interest and like it, it was like getting somebody over the finish line. And think about it too. Like we were three guys out of Copenhagen. It's like nobody invested in foreign stuff back then. Nobody. So I think at the end of the day, like we met DevDot from CRV and like he kind of broke the mold and he put his whole personal kind of credibility behind us and said like, I want to do this. I believe in these guys. I can make it work. And like, you know, I don't know how healthy his assessment of our <laughs> business was. And I don't think, like, I, I think the rest of the CFE partnership was looking at him like, so he was a young, new VC at that point. They're yeah. looking at him like, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. But like, you know, take a few million, you know, figure it out. And so he carried us over on his shoulders in many ways and, and like helped us uh, move to the U.S. And I think like once we kind of flipped the company, we're an American company, everything, it was a lot easier for other VCs to kind of, pull the trigger on us. So that's when we certainly got a lot of inbound. That was super duper weird, you know, from not being able to raise money to suddenly like everybody wanted to put some money in. That was pretty crazy. How much of that do you think was, you know, you you moved the company, you know, it was a small company, but you moved first from from Copenhagen to Boston. Yeah. uh, And then pretty quickly to San Francisco where you've, you've continued to call San Francisco home. 
how important you think the just geography of where you were was to that that kind of flip of the switch with, was, with VCs? So important, so important, no doubt about it. Like we moved to Boston simply because to to, to Debdud, you know, like help us. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Okay, <laughs> like uh, let's uh, let's do it. But then we got all the inbound. Then we got a lot of West Coast inbound. And I think after like moving to Boston, it also became obvious to us that the gravitational center of this world had almost 100%, like 90% moved to Silicon Valley. So we all agreed that like we should just, before our roots become too deep in Boston, we should just execute on move to Silicon Valley. So like we ended up with, with Benchmark initially and like Matt had kind of nourished that relationship over some time. And yes, he did the join a dinner with uh, me and some friends and all their kids. And they, we were watching PB Longstocking while he was on his Blackberry. <laughs> Can <laughs> you imagine? That, he left that part of the conversation, <laughs> that story out when, when uh, he told me that story. Yeah, yeah. No, but like Matt is still a, a good friend of mine and, and like I really cherish his friendship and like Benchmark has, has been like a, they're very good early stage VCs and, and like have helped us all the way through, you know, until now almost. Like Peter just left the board last year. Yep. So that was a remarkable relationship we built there. Great. Yeah. And, you know, looking back at it in many ways, if you would ask the question of any onlooker and said like, who would be the best couple of first VCs for me to have involved in the company? Apart from not having GGV, which was obviously a huge mistake, although we did join the train later, <laughs> yeah. you know, having DevDut and Peter involved from CRV and Benchmark early probably like would have been super high on anybody's draft list. So even though you uh, you may not have planned it, you did end up with a great situation there. It, in, in these early days, it it is so much about like it is almost like entering a marriage. Like you, you you're gonna spend a lot of time with those people, so that. You come to it from the same perspective and actually agree that you actually are getting married here and you're in it for the long term and and through what do you say in English through through sickness and health through everything like you're going through these things together and it's 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 gonna be ugly and you're gonna know a lot about each other that you probably didn't wish you knew and <laughs> and like we were so lucky with our early investors like that that was not planned but again like as i said like there was a lot of things that weren't planned with sandusk and that we were able to do so much from our gut and instinct you know helped us and and was probably a part of this absolutely you talked before about like the funnel business model you know your tagline at least in the early days was beautifully simple you were one of the early companies inventing the consumerization of the enterprise you may not have called it that then but that's really what was going on I remember reading in your book, Startup Land, which by the way, I highly recommend, that one of your first customers was like a pig farmer or some some, some, <laughs> some crazy kind of business. It, you must have been kind of wowed yourself, but when did you have the sense that, hey, this thing could work, this could actually work? Like we're getting all kinds of crazy customers that we've never talked to to sign up. This, this funnel model and this thing we call Zendesk could actually work. <laughs> You know, it may sound like a cliche when I say that, but like, I'm never fully convinced this can work. <laughs> no, I still very much like, you know, we, we are still a fast growing company. We still grow with like almost 40% year over year. And like the amount of change we have to deal with at our stage through that and, and like the amount of challenges and, and new opportunities that's ahead of us, like you never feel like you nailed it, you know? And nowhere through this process have I felt like 
we got it. Now I get it. Now I know how we win. It's, it never stops. But that's also the attraction of this. This is what makes it so interesting, you know, and this is why as a founder CEO, especially, you know, like you, you can get up every morning and still be incredibly challenged and just hit with pure kind of humility towards what you have in front of you and really, really enjoy it and find personal kind of satisfaction in having to deal with these challenges every single day. Like I can't imagine that there's many other jobs where you are so personally satisfied in, in terms of self-development and self uh, kind of challenge. So it like that I really considered a privilege mm. never to know that I got it, you know, never to feel that I now I reached it, you know. Now we know why the companies continue to be so successful because you are not standing still, not taking anything for granted. <laughs> no, no, and you can't, you can't. So how did you sign on your first couple of customers? As you mentioned, the model works, but you got to get people in the door into your website, right? Yeah. So how did you get them to show up in the first place? Yeah, all the things. You know, it's just like, again, like the internet was a much smaller place back then um, and you can do things that made you stand out a lot easier. Now it, it's a competition today, you know? Um, but like, think about it, like we grew up with AdWords, like, and, and like, it, that wasn't like a really established business, you know? And like, so like AdWords was still something where we could really explore and, and experiment with and get tremendous results from. But then we could do all these other things like much cheaper and hit a completely different audience and with a very unique message that people were just like, oh my God, what is this? And came to a website and then like once we had them to a website it was all about just removing friction you know get out of their way remove friction and just make it as easy as possible so we had this rule of thumb that for a long time like one out of every every hundred unique that visited our website would ultimately turn into a customer and like if you can, just could continue to optimize for that and crank it you know like we start could start to see the business grow so it was really all the things, you know, and like, and I think that's the same thing today. You have to do a lot of different things to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Find your voice in all of this, figure a way of stand out. Still, we are still a company today where like 80% of our traffic is probably organic. Incredible. Know? And you can only do that if you really invest in your voice and your brand. Mm. So that, I think that's a long-term investment you have to do. I continue on that thread, you know, as the business has grown from, you know, largely self-service to, you know, adding inside sales and field sales teams as well, what have been some surprises, right? Both good and bad as you've grown out, go to market. That has really been one of the things like we, so we are, think about it. We are like free founders or like introvert computer people, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So like for us, Nirvana was building this like, sublime optimized funnel that didn't require like human intervention where everything's like laid out for you in a smooth way, you know, and then we realized that didn't work. And we, so initially we created what we call our customer advocates group. And basically their job was to help people kind of through the funnel, really just making a smooth experience for them. And that's now a, a big organization that also does all our support and all these things. And then, you know, we got to a certain point where we're like, we're probably leaving, you know, but there's a lot of customers we're basically saying no to. That's probably a bad idea. Uh, so, so maybe we should have somebody's job to actually, you know, talk, converse, to, talk to customers. <laughs> that's why we uh, had uh, started our inside sales model. 
like I remember them in the early days and or rather they have come to me long after and told me back then it was like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I want that job. <laughs> yeah. So we, that really accelerated our growth, like getting that inside sales. And since then, our sales model have evolved tremendously. And it it's really like, especially as you go up market, go deeper into the enterprise you have to really evolve your sales model because it's a, it's something. It's at some point, it's not about the product anymore. Unfortunately, it's still about the product, but like ninety percent of the decision has nothing to do with the product. So that's really where you have a whole organization, and you need like you really need to educate the entire organization what it means to sell into large organizations. You've clearly spent a lot of time and early on, like built the ethic around the company around getting out of the way, right, and making it easy for. Yeah would-be customers to become customers and experience the magic of your support and engagement platform. In your book, you talk about one episode, and, and so you've, you've done a great job nourishing that customer, finding your voice, nourishing your customer base, and really you know, communicating them in, in a transparent way, more transparently than just about any other company had up until your point. Any service outage, you were the first to announce on Twitter all the time, and I think that built a lot of loyalty with customers. But in your book, you talk about one mistake you made, which was, hey, let's go raise price. <laughs> and um, that almost backfired on you. And you yeah, saw yeah. like, hey, this, this, this uh, rabid customer base can revolt on us. Yeah. So walk us through like your thought process there and like lessons learned and how you've you know, taken those lessons to heart as you've made other decisions about the company as you guys have grown. So it, it was a defining moment for us as a business because like until that point, and we're talking about what is that, 2009 or 2010. So we've only been in the U.S. for like a year or something like that. It's very early days. And until then, it's everything just like everything has just been like forward growth, positive, customer love, you know, everything. Like we were really riding this wave. And we felt that we had to make this kind of correction to our pricing which, you know, it came alongside a whole long range of features. So it's, it was very much like a reconfiguration of everything. And we felt confident enough to say like, and, you know, for these customer segments, you would actually pay more for these, all these capabilities. And it was relatively blunt in our approach to it. But because we had so much new stuff coming out, we, we felt good about it. And uh, that was the first time we as a company experienced customers just like, coming back to us and we're angry. Like everything is like front page of TechCrunch, like same morning. And I had so much inbound on Twitter, on email, on my phone, text, everything. So like, it's just like, that's very stressful actually. Just having <laughs> suddenly like, you know, tens of thousands of messages coming yeah. to you, very stressful. And like the organization was shell-shocked. Like we've never tried that before. We were not ready for any type of crisis. So like figuring out how to go through all of this and engaging with our customers and figure out what the right solution was and like basically retracting the changes for all existing customers, that was a big learning moment for us and, and, and really defined us as a company before and, and like realizing that customers, like we all, like every business talks about, oh, we have these customers and we have these customers and blah, blah, blah. But you never really have a customer, you know, like this thing about like owning the customer relationship and so on, it's all bullshit. You know, like you can earn the trust of the customer. You can try to do that every single day and you have to do it every single day, but you never, you're never in control of that customer relationship. So it was a very humbling experience that has defined us as a company in everything that we do that like, 
we can never take the trust of a customer for granted. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you, you, you took, a, took a huge negative and turned it into a, a real positive for the company. We were very lucky that our customers forgave us. We were, no doubt about it. So how have you uh, responded to competition? There are you know, legacy players and new players, and Bazendesk has been you know, pretty differentiated for a long period of time, at least in, in tech years, right? So how have you been able to manage that? It was funny, like we flew under the radar for kind of a, like a few years. Like nobody realized that like this was a real business and we were growing so quickly. So it took a while for anybody else to say that, oh, like I want to get in on this action too. So the first time we really got competition that just went directly after our customer segment and not only our customers, it went directly after our customers or our customers. <laughs> that was like, oh my God, what's going on here? You know, and uh since then, it has happened a million times, you know, like every two weeks, there's a new company trying to disrupt the customer service, customer engagement space. So now it's kind of now it's part of our nature. And like how we think about it is, you know, if we are in a successful industry, there's no way we can have it for ourselves. Like people will want a, a piece of the pie here. So embracing the fact that you have competition that's a positive for your customers for you as a company, so you don't get like stale and too self-satisfied and all these different things, is a good thing. And it keeps you on your toes. And ultimately, your customers win from having competition in the market. Mm-hmm. So we have to be smart about it. There's a lot of tactics we're doing to always kind of stay ahead and try to stay ahead. There's a lot of these new competitors that does a lot of cool, cool things, you know, and by the end of the day, it's only good for customers that you start to see competition. We are, of course, also, especially as we've grown up into the enterprise, starting to take market share from some of the traditional players in the market. And that's almost like a more like a generational thing uh, that happens. And it's, uh, it's great to see that you can bring freedom and you can bring kind of a whole new mindset to a business by changing a very old, stodgy system to something that suddenly sets them free and, and, and kind of liberates them and helps them be much more agile and so on. So I really like that part of it. We've been very fortunate to be in a lot of these situations where we've taken a company from like the old on-premise legacy stuff and suddenly help them run a much leaner business, much smarter business simply by using much more modern technology. So, you know, that part of it I enjoy tremendously. Let's chat a little bit about your IPO, which yep. was 2014. Already, you know, nearly you know, four-ish years ago, but at that time, the market got very soft for software, and you went out in a really tough market. Yep, timing's always been our things go right with companies here. and things go wrong. Right, <laughs> this was one where you had no control over it, but boy, it got it got tough right around the time of the IPO. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you know, looking back, you've had a great run as a public company. As you look back on that that IPO period, do you think it was a good thing that it was tough? Do you have regrets? about the timing you ended up having or how do you, you know, in hindsight assess the IPO and and what it meant for the company? Once we went down the path of deciding to go public as a company and said like, okay, we're going to get across that milestone and focus on what's behind that, I really just wanted to get it done and out of the way. And like, so this kind of play about the right timing and so on, like I just, I simply didn't have the patience for it. And I know that comes with some risk, but I also kind of knew that we we had to kind of trust the fundamentals of the business. Like we would not be a different business because of the timing. And again, like, you, you know, by the end of the day, it's all about like how big an IPO at what pricing can you do? 
And actually, like, you take some dilution from starting at a smaller price than you could have. But again, like, what you end up doing is that you give everybody a really good upside, you know, including your employees, including everybody. And that's not a bad thing, you know. And I think that has helped us tremendously get a really good long-term oriented shareholder base. Like, from the outside, it has helped us kind of with a story that is only about up and to the right. Yeah. So I don't have any any regrets. And I think that what it has done is that it has helped us kind of stabilize the story internally. And that's actually one of the hardest things. Like, so everybody in the company understands that like every step of the way we are in this together and it's all about getting these things moving upwards and forward. And it's it's very much about us and less about the markets, you know. With time, that's going to be more complicated because with time, you know, market's going to do all Go kinds of stuff. Down, yeah, right? exactly. But like, especially in the first couple of years, like it became very obvious that this was all up to us. And I think that was, that was good for the company. Yeah. There aren't many companies today where, you know, the original founder stays on through the IPO and then becomes a public company CEO, right? That's a pretty different job and a lot of founders just don't want to deal with that. So, you know, how have you kind of scaled and trained yourself, right, to, to do that job? <laughs> um, no, but I, I think it's. I think there's a difference between being a professional CEO and like and, and a founder CEO. You know, even though I'm the CEO of the company, in many ways, my first job is to be the founder of the company, um, and it, it, it carries tremendous value, tremendous weight inside and outside the company, because this thing that they all know that I'm in it for the long. Everybody knows that we are making decisions for the long. Everybody knows that like the values and where we came from still has tremendous weight in the company. It means a lot for people. So I think that like my job is different as a, you know, as a founder CEO. That also means that I need to complement my team and my executive team with some people that can do things that I'm not very good at because like I've never done this before, you know? And like, so I need like really strong operational people around me. Um, and I think... It's one of these things that is actually hardest. It's like going out and hire people that are much, much better than yourself. You know, not only in a, like in this area on that area, but just like has much more experience than you and has seen a lot more and have much more capacity maybe than yourself. And that can help you build the company. Uh, it's hard to do. Like that first one is really hard. But like once you're over that, it's uh, it liberates you as a as a founder CEO. One other thing, you know. In, in addition to building out your team, you've also been really focused and intentful on building out the culture of the company. You know, the Buddha has been a big, big part of your past. Um, you know, why did you care about culture? Why do you still care about culture? And, you know, what, what have been some of the, 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 the techniques you've used to help infuse and, and keep that culture as you guys have scaled? Culture and what it means for a company and to what extent you kind of influence it, you know, something that people want to talk a lot about and like I get a lot of questions about it and it's like it's an interesting topic it's also super complicated to be honest I, I believe tremendously in like building a company that reflects the world around us like we, we're a global company we have half a business outside of the US our customers are very very diverse you know and like so we have to be an incredibly inclusive company to serve a very diverse customer base because ultimately we want to sell to every company in the world and we can't do that by just being some smart, you know, wide company. You know, we have to be a 
diverse company with all the conflicts and all the things that comes from that. Mm -hmm. Because like that's where a lot of the interesting things are happening. When things meet, when people meet, when the intersection of things, that's where the interesting things are. That's also why, you know, we have our headquarters here in San Francisco in the Tenderloin. Smackdown. Like I see people shooting heroin every single day. Those aren't employees, are they? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that keeps the company humble in to some extent, mm -hmm. but it also gives some perspective on like what we do and like, you know, that what matters, you know? And so I believe in tremendously in, in that dynamic in a business that you need to have the cross-cultural, cross-everything kind of meet in a company that makes you strong. Beyond that, you know, I, I don't know to what extent I can control a culture. Like a culture evolves and it has to evolve. Mm -hmm. We cannot be the same company in one year that we were one year ago because like it's a brand new company at that point. Yeah. So it has to evolve, but we can have some values, you know, and like we, we try to talk a little bit about our values <laughs> and I hate that stuff. <laughs> it's just like, oh, like I'm being dragged into it and like I don't know what to say and like, oh. So, but like at the end of the day, it comes down to the people you hire. You know, so like if you really invest in hiring good people that have good intentions, that have the back of their colleagues, you know, and aren't assholes, you come a really, really long way because then everybody's kind of in it. So by the end of the day, I think our culture really relies heavily on our ability to continue to hire great people and like bring them into a, a family or bring them into a community where we have each other's back. So we like to conclude every real talk with a set of hot seat questions. So these are really quick, just to say the first thing that comes to mind. What's Pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's a favorite book that you've read recently that you would recommend to other entrepreneurs? <sighs> to other entrepreneurs, that's really hard. I, I, I'm actually, I'm terrible at, at reading kind of nonfiction. And I mostly read to sleep. One thing I would say is like there's an Australian comedian called Hannah Gatsy, I think her last name is, and she just did a show in New York, and she is like, that was a remarkable, she's a stand-up comedian, so it, it was a lot of fun. It was also the most uncomfortable setting I've ever been in. Like she is really taking some subjects that are incredibly hard about kind of the white power culture today, like being a white heterosexual male how that in itself is an exercise of power and like the things we don't realize about that and she just brought it right into your face and that was something i could recommend to everybody because that's one of the things we struggle with you know not only in current days you know us but all over the world that was a experience i can recommend mm. sorry great <laughs> not a book but we'll take comedian yeah. um okay We'll make this the last one, All right. so we'll get you out of the hot seat. You look pretty uncomfortable there. Um, <laughs> what's something that you believe that you think most other people don't? So I think, actually, it's, it's one of these things that I've learned along the way that we're really, really bad at saying when we don't understand something. And like even in my position or in the, the team I have in my executive, we're really, really bad at, at standing up and saying, like, I don't understand this at all. That's a really interesting answer. How do you get people to, to do it? But it is about like building a culture where like there's room for everything and there's also room for people standing up and saying like, I have no idea what we're talking about. We went through, we raised $500 million through a convertible note on the markets recently and we got this briefing on how everything worked and I was looking around. I was like, 
half of that I no, I don't understand what they're saying. <laughs> and I looked around and I was like, nobody's saying something like, but did you get that? Do you understand? And the people are like, oh, thank God. So I'm so happy you say that. I had no idea what we were talking about. <laughs> um, so you have to build a culture where it's okay to not to be smart. And, you know, San Francisco that has a Silicon Valley, you know, we have, we, we love being smart here. We love being the smartest person in the room. So we, we're not very good at admitting when we don't know <laughs> what we're talking about. And so and I think that's one secret. Like in, in, in so many cases, we have no idea what we're talking about. Well, Michael, this has been great. And I could say having uh, had the good fortune of being in board meetings with you for a few years, I know that you do know what you're talking about. Uh, I don't, but you certainly do. Uh, and listen, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, lots of great insights for founders and certainly uh, fun times to reminisce about some of the amazing things that uh, you guys have done in the past and really you know, excited for your future. Uh, Zendesk has had an amazing run. And it seems like the future remains as bright as it's ever been for you. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much, Len, and, and thanks for everything you've done for me and for the company. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Karstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>